Hope everybody is well. It's good to see you all here. Um, special welcome to those of you who are visitors. It's nice to see new faces. Um, my name is Pastor Matt Schwartz. I'm the pastor of worship and operations here, and I just love the opportunities I get to teach. Um, our lead pastor, Daniel, is away this weekend officiating his first wedding, which is fun. So Daniel's off doing that and doing a wonderful job, I'm sure. Um, and this morning, we return to our Gospel of Matthew series, which we've been journeying through for about a year and a half. We took a little break over the summer. Um, so we're going to finish up chapter 21 of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. That's the first book of the New Testament. So if you want to turn there to chapter 21, that's where we're going to be today. Today's message is dealing with a common theme that we see through the Gospels. And this common theme is about the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus and the resulting implications for the way that he lived his life and carried out his ministry. The authority of Jesus, how it was perceived and accepted and largely by the people of the time rejected. So we're going to look at an exchange today between Jesus and the chief priests and elders of the temple, and they're going, to, they're going to pressure Jesus into answering them about what authority Jesus holds. Now, this exchange we're going to see goes both ways. They have some questions for Jesus, and Jesus have some, has some questions of his own. Now, it's not going to ruin the story. Most of us know, or it's, it's widely understood, that the, that the leaders of the law of the day largely were unwilling to acknowledge Jesus' heavenly authority. Although, we see that their questioning and their overt skepticism, I believe, makes us think that they probably knew something was up. They knew that Jesus was at best, a dangerous person, at least to their lives, to their positions, their authority in the church. And we'll see that it's, it's largely out of self-protecting fear, self-righteousness, that they don't want to confess who Jesus is. They want him to say it so that they can hold it against him. So, a, a little bit of context before we get into our story today, because it's, it's been a number of, of weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and and uh, so, two, uh, two big events that have just taken place right before this, and let me remind you that this is a story, okay? The whole book, it's a story. It tells the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. So, often, we ought to go back in and read a couple chapters behind and a couple chapters after just to get an idea of the story arc of this book. Okay, but the two um, big events that have just taken place, the, the first one was the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, and the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, does anybody know what that means? It means save us. They're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling him son of David, all of these declarations are kingly and authoritative titles. So he's coming into Jerusalem, and the leaders are thinking, oh boy, here we go. Next, 
the next big scene that happens after he comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, does anybody know what happens next? Big story. We talked about it months ago. Anybody remember? You weren't expecting interaction uh, today. But anyway, so it's Jesus cleanses the temple, right? He pushes the tables over. He drives out the money changers, okay? What's he doing? He's establishing authority over that place. He's establishing authority over his house. So Jesus is here at the temple with the temple leaders, and the temple leaders press him on by what authority, Jesus, do you do these things, the things that have just happened, okay? By what authority do you do these things? It's a tenuous situation for sure. So let's open up to Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27 to start. We're going to finish the end of the book, but let's start in verse 23. I always want to say measure 23 for my music teaching days, but verse 23. Here we go. The authority of Jesus challenged. Let's read and learn. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Well, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say for man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray as we dive in. Heavenly Father, your word is life-changing. As we engage deeper with you this morning through your word, I pray that we would see where we can follow you closer, where we can see where maybe our sin has obstructed our view of you, and by the power of your Holy Spirit working together in this room, that we would move closer to you and that that we would learn and understand and love you more. We ask for this time to be blessed and for you to speak through me. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right, so so this conversation is about authority, but the the ante is upped in that it's it's talking about earthly authority versus spiritual authority or heavenly authority. Now, Jesus responds to their question with a question. Have we seen Jesus do this before? Please say yes. He said all the time, right? He's a brilliant, brilliant teacher, okay? And Jesus asks people questions because he wants our hearts to be filled with faith, not simply knowledge, okay? He asks us questions. He uses parables and probing questions so that the wheels inside of our heads and our hearts will start turning, And to get the wheels turning, so to speak, in this instance, Jesus uses the example of the prophet John, or John the Baptist. Now, in talking about John, he was a very well-known figure 
of the people. And, and at large, as, as, as Jesus said, that at large, um, John was believed to be a prophet. People believed him. Uh, many people followed him. And a prophet, by definition, is somebody who is sent from God with the message of God. Okay, so people believed that John was a prophet and had heavenly and spiritual authority because he was a prophet. That's what Jesus meant when he said, was John's message a a message from heaven or from man? Man meaning uh, uh, earthly authority, maybe at best a good teacher, okay? Or heavenly authority like a prophet sent from God to speak God's message. And Jesus points to John the Baptist not to take our eyes off Jesus, but to actually look at the ministry of John who and what he was talking about, okay? Let's look at Matthew 3.11. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Also, John 1.29, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. So John's ministry was largely believed to be prophetic and from God to point to the Messiah, Jesus and to set a stage for Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry being that he would come to bring the message of the gospel, which is the salvation of all who believe. The leaders of the temple knew all of this. Okay? They knew who Jesus, they at least knew who Jesus was claiming to be. They were very intelligent people. Let's not discredit the leaders and teachers of the law as being just these buffoons who we're like, ah, we don't like Jesus. They were really intelligent people, and they knew, it, they knew all the things that were happening. They could recite most of the scriptures from memory. They taught it. That was their vocation. Okay, but they were cowards. They were, they were mainly focused on their self-righteous position in the world, and they lacked the attempt even to believe. They didn't lack knowledge. They lacked faith and the humility, humility to submit to his authority. Okay, but after this exchange, Jesus doesn't walk away, does he? When they say, well, we we don't know where your authority comes from, and he says, neither will I tell you. Okay, that that wasn't just a Jesus dropped the mic seen. We have a couple of those in the gospel, but he didn't just like drop the mic and walk away. He stays and he teaches more. Don't miss that, okay? That says volumes, volumes of who our God is. That when we are lacking the humility to believe, He continues to teach. Jesus t- 
teaches for faith so that those that hear him would come to him out of their understood need for him, not out of coercion or obligation, that we would come to Jesus because we feel that we need him, we know that we need him to be the savior of our lives. So the Lord tells us two parables here in the story. He tells the leaders, and here we get to hear and understand them as well. So we're going to look at them. Before we do, though, in both the parables, there's a, there's a theme, a main theme of a vineyard, okay? Now, Jesus is speaking to an agrarian populace who had a really good idea of how farming worked and vineyards worked and how they played in society. So I'm only framing this because not all of us have a, have a great understanding of vineyards. I don't even. We've tried to grow grapes, and, it, and as I'll go into later, it, it hasn't gone great. Um, but anybody grow grapes here? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Nobody? I thought there were at least a couple of people that grow grapes here. Anyway, um, so what's cool about grapes is grape vines will grow almost anywhere. They'll grow in rocky soil, they'll grow in steep soil, they'll grow in hot soil, they'll grow in shady soil. However, to get and to produce fruit off of a vine takes a ton of work. It takes care and feeding and training and pruning. But when a vine is cared for and loved well, it produces an abundance of fruit. So when we look at the, the scene that Jesus is setting of a vineyard, we think of the time and the effort that it takes to build and make a vineyard, or as Jesus was referring to, the nation of Israel. Today, uh, in, the, in the new kingdom, we can understand that to being the new kingdom, okay? Um, but we see this scene, and we see, we see the father in both the stories sending other people in to work and to reap the fruits that he had set up in this vineyard. Vineyards were a symbol of abundance. Vineyards were like a family legacy that would be passed down century after century. Okay, so this is kind of an important thing to understand and kind of have that framed in our minds when we're talking about the vineyard in these two stories. So let's hear the first one. Um, This starts in... uh, Verse 28 in Matthew 21. Let's read it. Verse 28. The parable of two sons. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. This son answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, this is the teachers of the law, they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Okay, so this is a story about a vineyard. Yes, but it's it's about three main characters 
here. We have the father, we have son number one and son number two. The first son initially has no interest in working, okay, but then he changes his mind and he goes. And the second son seems initially like, sure, I'll go and work, and, but he doesn't. Both sons are entrusted to their father's cherished vineyard. They're entrusted to a life-giving place, and they both have a decision to make whether they are going to engage and work in this place or not. And it's clear to us, okay, and, and, and it's clear to the elders because we hear them say as much, that the first son ultimately does the right thing. The first son changed his mind or repented. Now, repentance is a word that we use if, you've, if you, maybe this is your first time at church or maybe you haven't been to church much and you hear this word that Christians use, it's really not a deep theological term. Really, all it means is to change one's mind. That's it. Change your mind, go in the opposite direction. That's what repentance means, okay? So the first son changes his mind, and he goes and he works. The second son does not. The second son is all talk, but no action. And I, I think it's Pretty, uh, pretty fair assumption if we paint the picture a little bit more, which we're going to do a little bit later, but that this guy probably took for granted his father's vineyard. He probably felt entitled to the point of not going to work. Now, after the story, Jesus explains to the elders and priests um, that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are the ones that get into the kingdom before they do. These are represented by the first son, the, the one who openly rejects initially. These are, the, these are the lowest of the low in society. These are kind of the bottom of the barrel sinners, the enemies of God, the unrepentant ones. Okay, so the, the leaders and teachers of the law would have heard tax collector, prostitute as, these are the ones that are just the worst, worst of the worst, okay? However, it's these or the first son, that realizes out of humility, hear that word again, humility, that they realize that they need to go and do the will of the Father. The second son doesn't feel as though he needs saving. So he does not go. He does not respect the authority of his father. And now Jesus brings up John the Baptist again in this story. In verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So the conclusion here is fairly clear that the second son is who Jesus is telling the elders, you are like that son. You wear the right costumes you say the right things, but you don't actually do my will. Now, Jesus tells us another parable, and the scene is similar, but the implications are a little different. So, let's look at verse 33 to 46. So, we'll go 33 to the end of the passage, or to the end of the, uh, the chapter. Verse 33, the parable of the tenants. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the teachers of the law that were listening said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to tenants who will actually give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, this, heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. I love that line. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. All right, so the second parable, like this is a pretty scathing rebuke, okay? This is, I mean, this, is, this gets to the heart of the matter, and it's pretty cutting, okay? Appropriately so, but it's, it's pretty cutting, okay? We have the vineyard, okay? And as I described before, it, this, is, this is kind of describing the nation of Israel, okay? And then we have the tenants, meaning the leaders of the law that Jesus was talking to, all right? And then we have the servants, sent into the vineyard. The servants are the prophets, okay? Over the centuries, prophets came proclaiming the, the news, <clears throat> the, the news of God and the message of God, okay? And then finally, we, we read about the Son, meaning Jesus himself. The fruit that was meant to be collected and procured from this vineyard was hoarded. It was squandered, by the tenants. The owner of the vineyard, the one who we understand to represent God had, like I said, he had, he had invested and built a well-operating vineyard to produce fruit. When you dug a vineyard, it would take about four years to get any fruit from it. So this is a large investment. So when you were setting out to do this, it was, it was, there was a lot of risk involved because you had to put up the money and then you had to wait a while for it to come out, okay? So that's an interesting uh, piece to remember here. Um, but the tenants operating the, the, the vineyard, they kept all the fruit for themselves. These men, as I said, represent the elders and the chief priests. They were not true believers because they are producing no fruit. They are keeping it to themselves. The authority, again, here's that word again, the authority of the vineyard owner was given no respect, especially from his son. The vineyard owner was not seen as a loving and caring provider who gave all these people jobs and a place to live, but they saw him as an obstacle. They saw him as a means to their own gain, their own selfish gain. So there are many things in these two stories that 
Jesus is trying to teach and things that we can learn through them. Now remember, these, sh- these stories are shared in response to the leaders coming up to Jesus and saying, what authority do you have? Okay, so these stories are primarily about those who reject Jesus, namely the leaders of the temple, okay? These stories are mainly about calling these people out. We see him calling out their arrogance, their entitlement, their greed, their self-righteousness, like the son who said he would go, but he didn't, or the tenants who don't share the fruit, and they actually kill, they murder in an attempt to inherit the vineyard for themselves. Selfishness. So then if we have a clear picture of those who reject Jesus and his authority, we're actually going to spend the second half of our time talking about who are those then who truly believe in Jesus? Because they're there in the stories. It just takes a little bit more to draw that out. So we're going to look at three main things from this passage, and there's lots of marks of a true believer in Jesus Christ, but we're going to look at this passage and take, take three of these out. The first one meaning being um, those, uh, those who are true believers in Jesus acknowledge, number one, acknowledge his authority and humbly submit to him. Two, a true believer in Jesus acknowledges their need to repent of sin. And three, a true believer of Jesus produces fruit. All right, so let's, let's, look at the, let's look at the first one, that true believers acknowledge Jesus' authority. So I'm going to talk to you and I today. Unlike the leaders uh, and teachers of the law, we must see that this book, all of it, all of it points to Jesus. All of it. Okay, Jesus has heavenly authority as coming as the very nature and spirit and person of God incarnate on earth. He must receive our authority. The leaders of the temple did not want to give up their positions of authority. They did not want to humbly bow in submission to the Lord of the universe, thinking they knew what their scriptures were all about, thinking they knew they were filled with self-righteousness. And it made them blind to the truth. But a true believer in Jesus comes to know him by the of our hearts, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This takes faith and humility. I think I've said that word four times already. Humility. The humility to allow Jesus to be Lord over our lives, to accept his loving authority over us, and that we would die to ourselves in submission to him. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Ephesians 2.8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. True believers in Jesus Christ acknowledge his authority and they humbly submit to him. We must, friends, we must lay our lives down 
and give them to Christ, who, who, who mustn't be anything but first in our lives. John the Baptist said it beautifully in John 3 when he said, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Beautiful words. If we don't give authority to Jesus as Lord over, uh, over our lives, we, we will be like the leaders of the temple, constantly competing for authority, competing for control. Okay. So the second mark of a true believer we conclude from this passage is that a true believer acknowledges their need to repent of sin. Now, in the first parable, it, it's the first obstinate son who actually does the will of the Father. It's the first son who's related, who who's, Jesus draws the connection to the, the prostitute and the tax collector, as I said, the, kind of the lowest of the low in society. It's these who are the first in the kingdom of God. It's these who repent and make Jesus Lord of their lives. It's these that see that they need to repent of their sin. And it's these that, Jesus says, will become the children of God and will inherit the kingdom and all its blessings. Now, I hope I can level the playing field here and just mention that everybody here in this room is or once was an enemy of God because there's a thing in this world called sin and God is ultimately holy and we are ultimately not. So we all deserve wrath because of our sinful nature. The Apostle Paul helps us understand this here in Romans 3, 11 to 12 when he says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So all of us here today are in need of repentance. But the gospel message, the good news, that's why we call it good news because it's really good news. The gospel message is that Jesus has come to take our debt of sin and to sacrifice himself on our behalf. This is, this is called grace because we didn't deserve that. Jesus comes to cancel our debt and repair our relationship with the Father. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus is bringing he came to teach this and he came to live it out. He came to be Lord of our lives as king of the kingdom of God. Now, many of us here, because I know most of you personally, many of us here have repented and turned to Jesus. But friends, please, let us never forget the mercy shown to us just like the prostitute and the tax collector who had no hope but repented and turned to Jesus. Let us never, never forget that point in our lives that we are given mercy not of our own merit, not of anything that we did, but out of the love of Jesus. 
So let us not be like the men in the second parable who hoard the gifts of the kingdom, but that we would be people that share the fruits of the kingdom. We would share the fruits of the kingdom to other people who are, like us, completely undeserving of the grace and mercy of Jesus. So this brings us to our our third and final point, that a true believer of Jesus produces fruit. As previously mentioned, the central theme in these stories that Jesus is teaching is the vineyard. And talking about the people that work in it or people that don't. So, friends, if, if you've called on Jesus today, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you're called to labor with Jesus for the kingdom, to help produce fruit of the kingdom and share in its blessings, to share not only in its eternal inheritance, okay, but also its blessings here and now in this life. So what does it mean then to work for the kingdom? I think that's, we could just say that and say, yeah, we're doing kingdom work, but what does that actually mean? Now, that's probably something that all of us should spend the rest of our lives pushing into and trying to understand. Okay, it's not just an easy answer. It's not a tech, the kingdom work is this, but Anytime we're looking at the complexities of living as a Christian, a Christian being Christ follower, that's what that means, okay? All right, when, when, we're, when we're pondering on how do we live as a Christian, really good thing to do is to look at Jesus, to look at the work and the person of Jesus Christ, okay? So kingdom work simply stated this morning, and please Let's, let's get into that deeper, and you can get into that deeper with your tribe conversations, etc. over the next few weeks, but the work of the kingdom, I'm going to give us two big things that I see in Jesus' life, to seek and save the lost, okay? And then to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus, to bring light to dark places, to bring the news to the so-called prostitutes and tax collectors of our lives, It's in doing this work that we will find what it is that we're all really looking for. And it goes without saying that the world is really hungry for that. If you you go to any bookstore or peruse YouTube, you'll see that people are trying to find the best life that they can have, the best self you can be, the best version of yourself. And the world looks for that largely in temporal things. Things that don't last. Things that will crumble. Real and deep satisfaction in Jesus comes when we are living and working for his kingdom and for his ways and for his design for us as humans. That's deep. And that's worth your life work. But allow me, as your pastor who loves you all very much, to challenge us as we close today. And I've had to preach this to myself as well. Do you remember the second son in the first story, the one who 
who doesn't repent, the one who, who goes and he, he says, oh, I'll go, but that he doesn't actually go. I want to paint this picture a little bit with a little bit more detail and look at this character a little further. I may even take a few liberties here, but that are based on what I see as very clearly implied in the text. Okay, the second son was, was like those temple leaders because he had a job, he had a, he had a name, he had the blessings and the securities of his father's business, he had a place to operate, he was richly blessed and he had grown entitled to what he had been given and that leads him to his inaction. Now, it could have been a lot of other things, but let's, let's focus on that. His entitlement led him to his inaction. And what do we know about entitlement? We know that people that feel entitled are only entitled to that which they feel they deserve. Very much like our characters at the temple. They felt because of their position and their name that they deserved certain things. So my caution to us this morning, not you, it's not me versus, it's us as followers of Jesus today, I think if we're not careful, we can become like that second son who has grown so used to the blessings and the fruit of the kingdom that we grow apathetic. And it breeds inaction. Now this can happen slowly and can be with super harmless things, even really good things. We as a people, we, we set our minds on how we're going to live our lives, how we're going to raise our families, and, but in that process, we forget sometimes to, that our main mission is to produce fruit for the kingdom, to seek and save the lost, to make disciples of all the nations. And the caution today is that we would not become apathetic to the lost ones in our lives that don't yet know the fruits of the kingdom. That we would not become too comfortable with our own blessings, with our own freedoms that we have as Christians, especially in the West. Think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan today. We are blessed with freedoms to choose. The food you eat, the clothing you wear, the school you send your kids to, the job you choose to work, the way you vote, the car you drive, the way you raise your family. These are, these are good things that can and should point to the kingdom of God, but if they become ends in and of themselves, then we will not be producing kingdom fruit. If we live our lives towards those things that become exclusive, and we actually prevent outsiders from coming into our world and seeing Jesus, then we won't be producing kingdom fruit. The mission of Jesus that we are called to is to seek and save the lost and to make disciples. 
And when you and I are reminded with humility that we were once enemies of God ourselves and by no merit of our own, he came into our lives, into our circles and saved us, we will be reminded that we must extend that mercy and that forgiveness to others. We will desire to do that kingdom work, but we must humbly remember the mercy shown and given to us, whether it's in our weekly grocery run or our nine to five job. Galatians 5, 25 to 26 says, if, if we live by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In church, if we live by the Spirit and exude its fruits, if you know them, say them with me. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If these are the fruits that we share, we will show a dying world who our Savior is. And then, and then if we're doing these things, we can recreate and we can um, educate and we can parent and we can cultivate to the glory of God and further the kingdom to bring lost people into our lives. I'm going to ask us all a question, and I ask myself the same question. If an outsider came into your life today, into your world, into your circle, your sphere, A, would they find it easy to get in? And B, would they see Jesus? Or would they actually find a whole lot of boundaries and a whole lot of obstacles and a complicated web in trying to see and understand that you're living for him, for Jesus? So who are the tax collectors and the prostitutes in your life? Who are, who are the outsiders that need Jesus in your life? Do you have room in your life to share the fruits of the kingdom with them? You are called to this work. We are called to be fruitful. And are we prepared, as Jesus did, to lay down all things? To lay down all things. To show undeserved mercy and love and grace. I'm going to invite the band to come back up as we continue in our time of worship. We need, we need God's help in this. We need the spirit of the living God inside of us to help us do this work. Because left to ourselves, we will become apathetic. We will become tired. We will become those that sit on the sidelines. So I plead with you to ask the Holy Spirit, and I will do so in a minute on your behalf, to equip us to be those that care about producing fruit for the kingdom and care about those who are lost and don't know him. So we're going to come to the, to the table now. We're going to have a time of communion. And if there's any a beautiful picture of the grace and mercy that God poured out for us, it's, it's here. 
If this is new for you or you don't quite understand what this is, the broken, the broken bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. And the, the juice or wine poured out shows Jesus' lifeblood poured out on our behalf because there was a debt to be paid. And instead of us having to pay that, God sent his son, Jesus, to pay it for us, to be king over our lives, to be our life, to, to put life in where there was death. And all of us as individuals can come to the one table to take individual pieces from one piece of bread to demonstrate that Jesus' forgiveness is for us all. And we take and we eat and we re-engage with the love poured out on our behalf. If you've chosen to follow Jesus today, this is for you to remember this is not a, this is not a life-saving magic trick. This is a ceremony where we remember what God has done for us. If you don't know Jesus today, maybe talk to the person that brought you or come see me afterward. Love to, would love to talk to you more. But God loves you enough to send his son to be king and lord over your life. So let us be those that produce his fruit and carry on his mission together. Amen? Let's pray as we go to worship in the table. Heavenly Father, we, we, need your, we need your spirit. And I pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters and myself today that, that you would equip us to do your work. That we would lay aside the things that hold us so tightly, that we would lay aside the things that trip us up, that we would lay aside the, the self-righteous, um, self-engrandizing um, ways that we position our lives and that we would in humility once again submit to you, knowing that you are good, knowing that when we live under your rule, we are living as we are intended to live. Help us do that, Lord. We can't do that apart from you. And we ask all these things in the name of our King Jesus.